0: That's hbs.me sales.
1: Welcome to the Compliance 4 radio show. We're dedicated to helping you connect with the greatest minds in the regulatory, legal, and compliance fields. Here's your host, Elizabeth Hamilton Guarino. Hello, everybody, and thank you so much for listening to the Compliance 4 podcast. We're brand new with this podcast. This is our third guest, so David Louie is with us. He's the co-editor of a great book called Modern Compliance. It's only 835 pages long, so we've expected you all to have read it cover to cover and have it memorized. Right, David? (laughs) How are you today?
0: Good. How are you, Elizabeth?
1: Great. Thank you for being my guest. I really appreciate it. Um, we're sort of on new ground here with our podcast, and so I appreciate our friends joining us to, uh, to to bring the podcast to life. I really appreciate you being here. It's an honor.
0: It's my pleasure. Thank you.
1: So... Um, the book. You want to get right into the book? I, I'd love, we're going to talk today about compliance controls for advisors and takeaways for other industries, but I think we're going to do a lot of that kind of based on the book, correct? Correct.
0: Well, that's right, and, and um, I'll, I'll give you some background on, on what the book was, was for and why, why I wrote it with some, some friends. So um, Modern Compliance is the first book to really take not just the requirements of law but best practices for uh, compliance across broker-dealers, advisors, and mutual funds and say, okay, what's the bar that we're all trying to hit? Uh, And I had um, um, come to the conclusion that a book like this was desirable when I was chair of the NSCP, and I I reached out to a friend, John Walsh, who was um, general counsel for OC, uh, or chief counsel for OC. And what we did is we reached out to 35 of the Best um, educators, you know, they're all compliance practitioners, but they're they're in a broader sense, they're teachers of of compliance. People who do um, panels and uh, people who write articles and and etc. And each one wrote a chapter on the area of their greatest passion. So um, the the chairman of KNL Gates wrote a, uh, a a chapter on advertising. John Walsh wrote a chapter on the history of compliance. I wrote a chapter on core compliance requirements. And we each fell out into sort of different areas. And the book becomes a study of all the best practices in um, the areas that affect people in the financial services community. Um, It came out in uh, 2015, and then we wrote a second book with all new content um, with 35 additional contributors um, that just came out two
1: months ago. Awesome. What, what made you What made you write the book in the first place, though? I mean, look, it's a really a big undertaking to gather 35 people. It, two books now. Um, what made you What made you really sit down and go, you know, this is needed?
0: Well, I had been CCO at a number of larger firms, so my My space was large firm uh, IACCO. And you know you could get a sense of where all the people doing the same work as you where they were in the industry, only through lawyers and accountants and transfer agents and custodians, people who touched a lot of different practitioners and there There was no good source material other than these service providers on where are the best practices for the industry. You could find out the minimum practices, what's the requirement of law, but this is really going to a different place. It's going to the place of, you know, how do you really create a program that you can hold up as being the state of the art and, and something that, that people in your, in your firm can be proud of and do it in a way that people don't hate you for it. You know, you're adding controls to what they do, but you're doing it in a way that um, everybody appreciates. And, and I, there was no tool like that. And John and I saw that, that there was a, a possibility to create that tool, and it, it took us about 10 years to pull it together, but, but here we are.
1: Mm-hmm. Is, it, is it safe to say that the book would help a compliance officer or, you know, or anybody in that field be their best.
0: Well, uh, that's 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 what we hope. Um we've we we've put out there are about 12,600 advisors in the country and we've we've been able to um distribute about 8,000 books. So the book itself, you know, it sort of creates its own wind because by saying what the best practices are in all these areas of concern, it sort of it, it becomes a little bit self-fulfilling because as more people use the book and, and adopt those policies as best practices, that's sort of where the industry goes. And the book yeah. itself has a long life because as a study of best practices, the best practices don't change nearly as much as the minimum standards, the laws underneath it do. Hmm.
1: Do you, um, is there a common theme like in with now, you know, 35 people, um, and oh, you said you added another 35 too. So um, with all of those people, is there a a common theme that sort of everybody writes about with respect to best practices? Is there something you see over and over, like analytically, that you see? Well,
0: you know, everybody has their own expertise in the book, but the thing that's common to the way that everyone approaches it is the passion that they approach their work with. So people who've been attracted to compliance as a calling – are people who understand that to implement something you need strong process and you need to have monitoring of that process and feedback on whether things are working. But at the same point, the best compliance people in the industry sort of balance that need for process with a need for creativity because they don't want the bureaucracy of compliance to overcome the fact that you're using – your creative self to to make your firm the best that it can be. And just as a funny aside, I've I've hired a lot of people into compliance and I've often found that the best some of the best hires I've ever made as newbies are musicians because musicians huh. understand that there's a balance between the discipline that you need to hit the right note and to sound good and still that discipline can't overcome your creativity. And so, so that's, that's, the, that's the kind of chord that the people who've written in the book try to hit. It's how do you know, to I- use creativity and, and also um, use it to implement process.
1: You know, I love that because um, I think really, and again, you know, we have way, you have way more experience than I do at this. I'm the I'm newbie. Um, but I love the the idea that, you know, create, you're interjecting creativity into this because a lot of people think, you know, oh, compliance is, you know, a very rigid, you know, this is the rule and that's it kind of thing. And, and I'm curious how creativity plays a role in that
0: well i mean you've you 've got a task right, so all of us in business have deliverables, we have goals and objectives, we have strategies that we 're trying to implement, and you 're saying okay what what is the process by which i 'm going to say okay here i want to I want a piece of um, saying what the goals for the firm are. I want to sit at that table. But once the goals have been determined, now I'm an implementer and how am I going to create processes that you know, facilitate the implementation of those goals in a way that are not Overbearing in a way that people respect in a way that people understand and still give you the information you need to facilitate um, uh, remediations when something is wrong, identify opportunities for improvement when things can be made better. I mean a lot of that, a lot of that you know and especially and this is where our topic today comes into play, the way that the SEC designed that with the help of the industry was, I think, very forward-looking because it said, we're going to let you design your own compliance program in the shops that you're in, but we're going to come in and make sure that it's adequate and effective.
1: Yeah, and I think, I, I think what you're saying, too, is that that doesn't just pertain to this specific financial services industry either. And in you know, in talking about the book, um, you and John Walsh said that the the securities compliance model is like a really good model for other industries as well, and I'd love for you to explain that.
0: Well, that's 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 absolutely right, and I think people who've been in the uh, securities world un- are going to understand what I'm talking about immediately. But the, our our universe in securities compliance comes from rules that were implemented in 2004. And they came out of sort of a much looser framework of, gee, well, you have legal needs, and someone has to tell you legally at a firm what to do, and there's a chief legal officer. But it wasn't required before then, but many firms had a chief compliance officer as well. And that was coming out of a a paradigm that was sort of um, uh, spurred by the federal sentencing guidelines. And what the Federal Sentencing Guidelines did was to say, look, if you as a company go off the rails and you're doing something bad and and your company is held to to task for having done something wrong, when we sentence you, whether it's a fine or whatever it is, when we sentence you, your company, we're going to take into consideration – The acts that you took to train people, to remediate things within your firm, to look for problems, the the policies and procedures that you made, the, the work that you did to try and hold everything in place the way it should be. And what the SEC did is it took that paradigm, which we, we we in securities were operating under the same kind of framework as other industries operate today. It took that framework, and it said as a regulatory matter, okay, we're going to take this, and we, instead of trying to view this as sort of remediating a negative, which is to say – you know, if you do something wrong, your compliance program is going to mitigate the damage. It took it and said, how can we use compliance to create a tone at the top for each of the firms that it's in that's very positive towards um, um, complying with federal securities laws, prevent detecting, correcting violations of federal securities laws? How can we create this tone at the top and actually a culture of compliance? And that was very different and what they did so they took compliance and they said you know and this is now I'm now I'm sort of paraphrasing with my own vision they took compliance and if if I'll use an analogy to a ship if we were on a ship together and you said what's the different roles of compliance risk management and um the the supervision of the firm you'd say well compliance is sort of like the night watchman going around making sure that all the watertight doors are shut, the running lights are on, the engine is set, the sound of the engine is good. Risk management sits up in the crow's nest, and they're looking out to the horizon, the nearby horizon for icebergs. But it's in the wheelhouse. It's the captain of the ship who's deciding where that ship is going to go. And what the rules did is say we're going to make – the the compliance officer function at the table of the captain and the captain's role is not just to make money but it's the ethics of the firm. So it was compliance in the service of ethics and it said you have to create procedures for the firm to do the thing that it's supposed to do that are both adequate and effective. And those two words had very specific meanings. So adequacy is are the procedures the thing doing the thing that needs to be done, okay? And effectiveness is do the procedures actually work? So, so what happened was to make the procedures to do the thing that needed to be done, the compliance officer and all the executives and all the business lines had to come together to say, this is the program of the firm. We're trying to achieve this, and in trying to achieve this, we're going to monitor it this way. And effectiveness came does the thing work and so i'll use a second analogy with that so if we had a lawnmower if you had a small patch of grass the lawnmower might be adequate if it was a push lawnmower that you moved forward and all the blades started to rotate and it cut the grass for the little patch that the 600 square foot of patch patch of grass you had if you were trying to mow a, a full golf course you need some huge John Deere machine that would run on its own with gasoline and it have mm-hmm. rotating blades and have to cut huge segments of gas. What's adequate for the job is different for the firm that you have. And effectiveness is does the machine work? The pushed lawnmower is effective if you push it forward and the blades turn and it cuts grass. It works. The John Deere works if you turn the key and, and the engine goes on and the blades rotate. So what the SEC did is it said compliance has to be in service of the management of the firm to create a tone at the top that will elevate compliance to into the realm of, a, of, of ethics. And then the procedures not only have to be adequate to do that, they have to work. They have to be adequate and effective. And that was brown-breaking... Great breaking a groundbreaking space for compliance. So you have adequacy and effectiveness, so you have to have these procedures that are designed well, they have to function well, so you have to test them. And then the chief compliance officer, which became a, compli- a required role under the SEC requirements, has to test them to see okay, where are the problems in the system, and that test then had to be made available to the SEC. So when the SEC came in, they had access to the compliance officer's work. And the compliance officer was bound to say all the problems that he or she had discovered with the threat of personal liability behind that. And that became a paradigm where the the compliance officer could say to management, look, we have a problem here. It's going to have to be in the report. Don't we want to do something to fix it before the government comes in? and And that was brown breaking uh, um, uh, innovations by the s e c and things that are just as applicable to other industries as they are to securities
1: i love it that's a that's a great that's a great learning tool at, at listening to you talk about that 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 was great, and the analogies are really helpful too. You know I uh, sometimes with our audience between here and um our other show best ever you," which this runs kind of simultaneously on on both um, we have a lot of younger listeners um, who are trying to figure out their careers, you know they might be in college at you know at the tail end of college, trying to figure out what to do with their you know life job whatever it is and um that was such a nice explanation at a level that, you know, anybody can understand whether you've been doing this for 30 years or you, you know, you're just in college. Could you take us back just even a little bit more to somebody listening who might be inspired by this show and talk about um like jobs in compliance, that kind of thing, you know, like somebody listening might be going, "Oh, this is this compliance thing. This is really interesting to me. Where does somebody like that go?" And then I'm going to go well, back.
0: And, uh, that's a that's a That's a great question, and certainly government regulation is going to be on the upswing for for you know probably the lifetime of everyone on this call it's This program itself is sort of an interesting mixture of regulation in a way of regulation and deregulation because on the one hand, the government could have come forward and said okay, well, we've got 487 different types of firms, and going down the other axis, we have 10,000 rules that can apply to each, and they could have made different rules for every type of firm and said you have to comply with these rules, and they could have given you your procedures, right? It would have been an awfully complex undertaking. Mm -hmm. But what they did is they decided to say, Okay, you design your own rules. We have these general laws. You decide. You design your own rules, and we're going to come in to see if we think that what you've done is working. Okay, does, is it designed well, and then is it working? Right, and that kind of paradigm, because it sort of partakes in in yeah. It's adding regulation on one side of the spectrum, but on the other side of the spectrum, it's doing it in a way that allows you a lot of flexibility, it creates a lot of work, right? Because you now are designing the program for your own firm and trying to tailor it to your needs. So a new person coming in and saying, where's a spot for me? Compliance is a spot where It's a hard job, but there's always going to be work in it because someone who knows what they're doing in compliance in one industry is fungible to another industry, largely. You have different rules, but still, it's the same call to action. And I think that, um, you know, this kind of work, is just going to increase as time goes on so compliance is sort of the a cousin to the lawyers in the firm it's something you can do without a law degree but it's still very intellectually stimulating and very important for the firm and unlike the lawyer's job the lawyer's job is a little bit more abstract because you're dealing with the kind of special issues that come up from time to time the compliance, is in the compliance is in the heart of the business. Very few decisions can be made without compliance input of one form or another. How can you advertise this? What's the, how do we express our performance? Is it, is it acceptable to invest in this security or that security? And what are the ethical concerns of the people who are doing the work? What kind of securities can they buy for their own account? That work will be there forever.
1: Do you... Um... It seems to me, and, and these are some questions that we've gotten while you've been speaking, to. so I'm, gonna, I'm asking your questions, everybody listening. It seems to our listeners that compliance is everywhere um, in so many different industries. Um, can you name a few other ones, maybe?
0: Oh, absolutely. I mean, the first one that comes to mind is medical work. I mean, every hospital. And, and you know, one of the things that, that I can look at in, secu- in the world of securities is, you know, the decisions that we make involve a lot of money, but no babies are going to die because of it. In the medical world, everything becomes very serious because you're really talking about life and death decisions in terms of how you respond to different crises in a hospital, how you keep the hospital up to date, the protocols that are used. So the medical side is definitely very, very heavy on compliance. But other industries like building and OSHA and, you know, government procurement and, uh, you know, wherever you have an interplay of people who need to be protected and uh, uh, a large industry, compliance comes into play. Air and aerospace has big uh, compliance elements too. Automotive, That's really the, the, yeah. the design of cars, the design of ships, the, the design of things that, if they're not done right, will involve danger to people's lives. They all have compliance elements that are very big. Even advertising agencies have very strong compliance elements because all the little footnotes that you see at the bottom of, of the screen, they can be designed by lawyers, but how you express them and how big they are, how long they have to stay up, what, what, how you change them to different audiences, those are all compliance elements.
1: Uh, so somebody just asked this while you were talking as well. They're, they're asking, is compliance really for the people?
0: Well, you know, that's that, that whoever asked that question, that, that goes to the core of sort of who we are, right? Because on the one hand, we all work for companies, and in working for companies, we're advocates for those companies. But on the other hand, standing behind those companies are people who are, buying the product in one sense or the other, and the question of whose face we have in our mind when we say something, you know, sort of becomes a personal question. I often tell people when they're looking at advertising to to picture someone in your family, you know, someone who doesn't know as much as you do about the product that you're talking about, and say to yourself, will this person understand it? I mean, you certainly have to, if you're not an advocate for the company that you work for, they won't want to keep you working for them, right? So there's a, there's a huge part of the job that's about that. But in doing that, you have, a, you have an obligation to the end user as well. And, and that's where the elevation of your role from the night watchman, the person making sure the watertight doors are closed, to the person who's the guardian of ethics at the firm, comes into the fore, right? Because at that point, you're reminding your company that something, however you want to phrase it, that something might be an ethical issue, and does your company want to be on the wrong, wrong side of an ethical issue? So that's to say, yeah, it's, it's going to hurt the end user, but is it in our interest to do something that might even have the appearance of a conflict of interest? So that 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 question is at the core of who we are as compliance professionals.
1: Awesome. And we got one more question. I'm going to just keep with the questions for a second if you don't do you mind? Is that okay? Or should I hold them till the no, end? No, no,
0: it's, it's even oh. better than, you know, just okay. doing a presentation. Sure.
1: Perfect. Um, so uh, we have a, a question. Someone wants to know how did you get started in compliance? They're um, they're reading that you got to have a BA in history from Brown University, and your law degree from the University of California, and they're wondering at what point you you know there's lots of different um, you know different law, types of law to practice. Why did you pick compliance?
0: Well, you know it's it's like most things in the world that I, I think they're very. There's a, a very lucky group of us that pick our profession. Most of us, the profession picks us. Um, so I was—I I graduated from law school. I worked for a firm, and—and and there's a joke among lawyers that the first lawyer who gets to you decides what your your career is going to be because they put a <laughs> file on your desk. You have to execute a memo or do something about that file and all of a sudden everyone in the firm knows, oh, this person can do financial services stuff and and that's what happened to me. And I ultimately left the firms that I was working for, which were uh, San Francisco firms, and I went to uh, Charles Schwab in San Francisco and um, I became the guy who writes all the prospectuses for the mutual fund and I did the minutes for the board meetings and then finally, I started creating the mutual funds, that, uh, doing the registrations with the SEC, etc. And from there, I decided I wanted to get closer to the business, and I became Chief Compliance Officer for Charles Schwab Investment Management. I moved on to Franklin Templeton and became their, their Chief uh, Compliance Officer for their asset advisor, for their, their investment advisor. And then uh, after that, I moved to Minnesota and was chief compliance officer for U.S. Bancorp.
1: Yeah, this is why when I when I meet you in person, it's like it's just if you've ever, if you've ever met David in person, it's just like there's just so much respect for him in the industry. So you understand how this is a huge moment having you on this call. It's just it's so nice to have your wisdom with us and hearing all all that you know that that has brought you to this point. Um, in your career and you know what you think in the book and all this stuff. So I just want to thank you again for, for being here with us. And I'm going to go back to some questions about, um, that per, kind of pertain to the book. Is that okay if we kind of go back there um, sure. and draw those analogies out to the other industries? Um, I'd love to know about the relationship of compliance to kind of like the, the business lines in the securities law model, if you can kind of take us there too. Because I think that would be really helpful for people to learn while while we've got you.
0: Absolutely. So, So, you know, compliance is really nothing by itself because it's not that you're the CEO of the firm, the chief executive officer, you're the CCO, which is the chief compliance officer. And so as a CCO, you become the second of three lines of defense in your firm the first line of defense is supervision so the people who actually have the employees that report to them have to take the rules of the firm seriously enough that they're going to work to do everything within their power to implement you sort of stand behind them and you're you're guiding them and so what you're doing is you're taking those same procedures and on a very very broad oceanfront you're doing shallow dives to look under the water and see what's there so you're looking at all the procedures of the firm seeing if there's a problem and then reporting back to management now the if your firm is large enough to have an internal audit department you as compliance are working very closely with them because what they're doing then are they're going deeper out into the water and they're doing a couple of really deep dives And they're going down to the depths to see what's really going on. And you, as compliance, need to coordinate with them so you're not sort of double-dipping on the testing. Where they want to do the testing, that's sort of better for you because they're taking it off your plate. They're going deeper, and you can rely on their findings unless you think that there's something wrong with them, right, which, generally Mm -hmm. speaking, isn't the case. So and they like what you 're doing because they can only do that a couple of times and and, and they can 't provide the coverage that you provide so you 've got these three lines of defense at a firm, and you have the relationship with audit, which is sort of a symbiotic relationship at its best um, and with management, what you 're doing is you 're trying to work so that you 're on the same side of the table as them, right? You don't want to be the compliance guy who's everybody's nightmare that says no to everything and doesn't give a way out. You want to try and get people to a place where they, you know, agree that X, Y, and Z is important, that they're willing to implement it, and then work with them to design the strategy to implement it, right? But you're doing it through the manager. So I had a situation once in my career where, For example, someone, there was a person who had been told not to do something. It was a a trading matter. He did it anyway. And I didn't want to have necessarily a fight with that person and say, hey, buddy, I told you not to do this. Why did you do it? Didn't you know it's wrong? Don't you know that you now have to be sanctioned for doing that? What I did was I went to his supervisor, and I didn't do it because I was trying to be nasty. I did it because compliance has to sort of build up the supervision in the firm to implement the requirements of the firm. And when I go to a supervisor and say, hey, supervisor, this guy who reports to you, you know, you're responsible for what he's doing, and here's what I see. I see a guy who had come to me and asked me to do X, Y, and Z, I had said no. He did it anyway. And so what, how do you as a supervisor want to handle that? And that person then gets, you know, he's, he or she is concerned because he sees that he has to do something, but he doesn't know what. And more likely than not, he turns back to you and says, well, what, what should I do? And then you can talk about remediation. But what you're doing is you're building that supervisor up so that the person that actually is delivering the message is the person who has the power. And you're closing the door to the person who's broken the rule to say, hey, this compliance guy, he's a real, he's a real um, such and such. Um, and, he, and letting that guy then go to his supervisor to make it a personal fight between you and, and the guy who's done something wrong. You've closed that door by bringing the supervisor in. So compliance has these relationships around the table where you're trying not to be isolated. And that's all about building a culture of compliance at the firm and a tone at the top that you have a partner, an internal audit, you're upholding the, the um, uh, authority of the supervisors at the, th- the firm, and to the CEO you have a relationship of, of trust and confidentiality where, where that person, instead of having you be the night watchman, will let you into the wheelhouse of the ship and help you steer the boat to ethics.
1: Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Instead of being like the, you know, I gotcha, you know, kind of thing. Because that, that just makes everybody, you know, that just creates such a, a mean environment. That kind of what you mean where it's not like I gotcha, it's more of like a culture of everybody working together.
0: Oh yeah, a, a gotcha kind of compliance program is is only going to last so long at a firm before yeah. not not only the people at the firm are sick of it, but the compliance officer says the 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 culture here isn't allowing me to be creative in in the way I'm doing things. I don't want to do it.
1: Yeah, and do you think that comes with mileage? You know, that culture of compliance, or you know, you've you've Seen it, you know, seen this that enough times that you know you you get the mileage on you to the point where you know it can can be handled in you know like a, a much different tone, um, or, or how does that work? Because it it seems like that role could lend lend itself, you know, in the wrong person's hands to sort of that kind of gotcha culture.
0: Well, you know, that make- there's, there's, that's a, that's a great question, and I think there are a couple of couple of things about that. All of us in compliance, you know, like everybody else in the world, change our jobs every, you know, six or seven years, whatever it is. And when you go into a new firm and you're you're looking at a potential employer, in compliance probably even more than other jobs, it's important to interview the people who are interviewing you because you <laughs> have to assess, you really have to assess whether or not They're paying lip service to the notion that ethics are important and that following the the process is important and they want your voice at the table, whether they're paying lip service to that or they really believe it. So I've had supervisors, for example, who without any prompting at group meetings of the firm will always remember to say, and all of you, I want you to know how important compliance is to me. The work they do is difficult, and it's not always easy for you. But without their help, I wouldn't have the certainty that we have the ethical firm that we do. That's one scenario. The other scenario is working for a firm that no matter how often you remind the the CEO to talk up compliance, he or she will never do it because it's not in his heart. He doesn't believe it. He thinks right. it 's boring, he thinks it 's unnecessary and, and you, as a compliance officer that 's a very hard thing to change when you go into a place that has a culture that that doesn 't um, value compliance you know you can you can hope you can change it, but cultures are devilish things to change once they 're ingrained they 're there mm,
1: because everybody is know.
0: trying to everybody is trying to play up to that CEO in what his or her values are. If he's saying, oh, God, compliance, you know, it's, it's the most boring thing in the world, blah, 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 everybody's going to start to mirror that attitude. If the CEO is saying, no, ethics are where we're at, you know, people are going to be very careful before they, they, they start to attack compliance needs.
1: Yeah, How big of a fan are you of training, like, you know, like compliance training and things like that?
0: You know, I think that it is absolutely one of the biggest and most positive takeaways that you can bring to the table as a compliance officer. So so everybody values the fact that, that training is important for a firm. And as a compliance officer you can, you know, send out an occasional email, have an occasional brown bag, you can have a series of brown bags. Or you can even go as far as creating a university program. And when you do that, what you're doing is a very important thing for your firm. You would say, okay, um, here here, here are all the procedures we have. Here's here's what our needs are. Um, I'm going to do something that um, gives people the opportunity to create relationships at their level in a firm. To say, Okay, here's a topic which will bring in operations and technology. The people in ops, the mid-level people in ops, might not know the mid-level people in technology. And having the training is a way for them to meet one another. By the same token, it's a way to advance in the firm. The more you know how the different areas of the firm function and operate, the more likely it is that you're going to be successful and you can be promoted. But the training also, you know, especially in a firm of any size, does a very special thing for people. Because if a person, say in a 200-person organization, wants mobility, if the ops guy wants to move to technology, if the technology guy wants to move to trading, if the trading guy wants to move to advertising, if the advertising guy wants to move to compliance, whatever it is, those people tend to come to the trainings on the different areas of concern, and they use it as ways to meet the supervision, who are the people speaking, and get noticed and finally you know, express a, a desire to move over. So I've seen the training be very important for mobility within a firm. What I like hmm. to do when I go to a firm is set up something that I call a university program, and it's not my invention, but it's, it's not as hard as it might seem. So I'll say over the course of a year, let's have 15 brown bags or 20 brown bags, and I'm going to have, you know, inside experts. It's not going to be like a big deal. It's going to be like someone from advertising talking about their job, someone from ops talking about their job, and it's going to be training people on how things work at the firm. And from time to time, I'll bring in the outside lawyer and the outside accountant and, you know, a custodian, whoever I can get who doesn't charge money. And I'll say, hey, <laughs> yeah. do you want to speak to our, our people? You know, a consultant will, will often do this. Do you want to speak to our people and give us a freebie? And people love that. You know, I've found that I can get just for the cost of having a, a lunch, you know, bringing out a, a tray of uh, Of tacos or a couple of pizzas whatever I can get a third of the firm to attend a training like that and what I'll do around it is I'll create a little brochure that says here's Smith Advisors University and I'll say this is the course offering and if you take those four courses you are a mutual fund specialist and if you take these six courses you're an investment advisor specialist, and on and on like that. And when people take the courses, I would give them a little Lucite that would, you know, have the course catalog in it, and I would say, like, mutual fund specialist. And people love that.
1: And they, they really,
0: you know, even even years after they get those kinds of certificates or Lucites or whatever, I would see them still on people's desks because they valued it, and, and they valued the the fact that they work for a firm that would do that. In the, in the best firms that I, I've worked for in my career, the CEO would come to me before a sales call and say, hey, give me about 15 of those course catalogs. And, and, and she would use it as a um, selling point to say, why are investment advisors different from all the others? Look at the way we handle our people. And yeah. you know something? They were right. That's important.
1: I hope everybody listening is hearing is hearing and picking up on the fact that there are management things being taught on this call too. This just isn't compliance. you are a take this for me here you're a developer of people
0: oh that's you' you're that's so true, and it's so good of you to call that out and and it is the highest level of the compliance calling that you're not just sitting here. As the implementer of rules, you're changing attitudes at your firm to why those rules are there and who the firm is. Why do we have these silly rules, right? It's because we're an ethical company and we want the best for our customers, and when you when you emphasize that element of of, of the role that 's when you 're creating a tone at the top, a culture of compliance that 's why the paradigm that the SEC implemented rather than the paradigm of how we 're going to get out of a bad sentence so we can you know we 've been found guilty of x, y, and z we 're going to tell the judge we had a training program, which is what other industries do that 's why this model is superior and has applicability in other industries.
1: It must be so interesting to be you and take a look at all the lives that you've touched and managed and see where people are today, almost like a baseball coach who's had, you know, this group this year and this group this year. It must be so interesting to see where people are and what you've taught them through your career.
0: you, You know, there's a common thread to the best compliance people, and somewhere in the heart of the best compliance people what i found is a teacher it's a person yeah. who wants to to communicate to other people about you know values and why things are done and what's the what are the best practices and that's not unique to me each of the 70 people who volunteered to write chapters in the two books i did it's it's in it's in each of their
1: hearts yeah um okay so I'm going to go back to um compliance programs for a minute if if you don't mind but back into that you know the culture of compliance you're there and you have a program to develop for a firm can you take us through like what's involved with that that's you know I don't know if you want to I don't know how you would how you can do that I don't know we have we have 15 minutes left that's like a can of worms probably <laughs> but no, you know no, very no. basically
0: It's a great question, and and you know at its root, um, everybody handles it a little differently. But for me, what's important in a compliance program is that it be measurable and proactive. And let me tell you what I mean by that. You can have a compliance program that um, you're just being buffeted by every problem in the world. This one comes to you and says, oh, David, I have this problem. Someone else comes to you, oh, David, I have another problem. I have this, I have that, I have this, I have that. And the question becomes, is your role the problem solver as they come up? That's one way to view compliance. Are you a great compliance officer if problems never come and you sit in your office and no one is is approaching you? I, I think both of those models are sort of flawed and what I try to do is I try to create a strategic plan for compliance. And what's that? That's saying my success in the firm is all bound up with whether I whether or not I can be proactive and do something that's measurable. And that's a that's a that's a real challenge for compliance. How are you gonna do that? So you know, I'll make a strategic plan at the beginning of the year that says, okay, you know, of course I'm going to handle the issues that come up from time to time, and that's all good, all right? Put that aside. But in addition to that, the rules and the, the three rules we're talking about, um, there's a rule for advisors that the SEC put out called 20647, a rule for mutual funds, which is Rule 38A1, uh, a rule for investment for broker-dealers, which is 3130 under the, the, the Securities Exchange Act, um, the others are under the Investment Advisors Act and the Investment Company Act. What they're calling on you to do is to say, okay, so, so, so make these procedures, right? And what I'll do is I'll tell management over the course of that year, these are the procedures that we're gonna review. And You don't have to review every procedure every year but it has to be a program that you get to them all within a reasonable time. And I say, okay, so we're going to review these 30 procedures over the course of the year with the business line. And what the rules are doing is they're saying every year you have to look for changes in law, changes in business lines, right? Are you offering new products or whatnot, and patterns of compliance exceptions and respond to them. So you have to look with your business partners and say, how do I have to change these procedures this year so that they're kept up to date? Um, So in your strategic plan, you're doing that. Then you're saying, okay, now these 30 procedures have 267 individual control points. And these control points are the way that you make sure that your firm is doing the right thing. All right. And so you identify what the control points are and you say, i'm going to design some kind of test around each of them right it could be a little test it could be a big test it could be just looking at a couple of emails it could be looking at a whole uh, ledger of transactions but whatever the test is you say here's the test that i'm going to design and i'm going to test these items and those tests are what go into the report and through the year the fact that you're keeping on track with the review of procedures to see that they're up to date and the test of the procedures to see that they're working, adequacy and effectiveness, you're proving to the SEC that you've drunk the Kool-Aid on the rules. You're doing those things, but you're also proving to management that you're implementing a strategic plan for compliance and making a deliverable out of compliance that, that, that makes it into a product, right? And in making the product you can then prove to management your success as a compliance officer. So so you look at these things, and then in the report, it's not necessarily that you're finding huge violations of law, although you have to report material compliance exceptions, but you're identifying all the different opportunities for improvement that arose from your testing. And through the process, you're saying, okay, here's the... 36 opportunities for improvement that I found. Now over the course of the year, maybe using a heat map, that's the way I do it. Red, yellow, orange, green. Green, it's done. Red, I haven't started. Orange, I've started it, but it's not too far. Yellow, it's getting near completion. Right? You're showing management how you're improving the compliance processes at their system. And every year when I was a chief compliance officer, that's what I'd do. I'd go through and I'd say, okay, here's the strategic plan. Here's where I am at this meeting, that meeting, the next meeting, the next meeting, so management knows that I'm progressing. Here's what I've found, and here's what I've, how I've remediated the things that I've found. And then the compliance role begins yeah. to have that cadence.
1: Yeah, no, I, that's, that's awesome. The um, Okay, so while you were talking, we had – get Five chief compliance officers asked pretty much the same question. Um, Uh Yeah, no, it's that's cool because it sparked. You know, that's awesome. So the the question is about reasonableness and reasonably designed. Um, Do you have anything that you can add? You know, kind of like surrounding those words. Like any insights to what reasonable is for a compliance program? Everybody asked the same question.
0: These these people have lived the pain of knowing what they have to do and what they have to report because the rule, the definition of adequacy in the rule is that a procedure is reasonably designed to prevent, detect, and correct violations of federal securities law. And so what does that word reasonable mean? <laughs> that that becomes the question, right? That's a big question. And when the rule was first implemented, one of the drafters of the rule was an SEC administrator by the name of Gene Golke. And whenever I shared a podium with him, I would ask him the same question in front of every different audience. I'd say, "Hey Jean, you know you wrote this. It doesn't say that the procedures have to be designed to prevent, detect, and correct it's reasonably designed. What is that word reasonable there because you know i would i would I would tend to say just as a reader that that sort of would give me the space that you know, I'm not ensuring that everything has to go well at my firm. What I'm doing is I'm putting in place these controls that I think in my heart are designed well to prevent, detect, and correct. But if something goes off the rails, that's, that's not going to be my fault, right? And, you know, he'd give me that he'd give me that each time because you whenever whenever you as a chief compliance officer are given a certification that says I insure, I ensure that my firm, XYZ, I ensure that there has been no violation. Yeah, no, 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 no. I don't insure. That's not my job. My job is that I'm appointed by the Board of My Mutual Funds or the the management of my advisor to help implement a program where the procedures are reasonably designed to prevent, detect, and correct. I've done that. And then I have to test it. I've done that too. I've created a reasonable testing process. And guess what? I have found X, Y, and Z, none of which are material. I'll tell you that, right? But what I won't tell you is that I haven't found things that might be out there because I am not omnipotent. There might be things that I didn't find, and I'm only human. I can only do what I can do. I, I can't know the things that, that, that are beyond my, my uh, ability to test, et cetera, et cetera, But I tell you, I'll, 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 I am a reasonable person, and I'll put in place a reasonable program. And it's on that notion that the work you're doing is reasonable, that the compliance officer has his or her best defense.
1: Got it. Um so now talk about the oversight of the program let's let's go to that side of things so what does over what what does uh, insight into oversight <laughs> what so you've you've got all that going you've got it reasonably designed and all that stuff now what's oversight
0: well that's 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 also a great question so the 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 rules the the rule that um governs mutual fund operation is the most detailed of the three rules And that rule says that if there's a mutual fund board, you have to report to the board. You can have a matrix relationship to the management of the advisor as well, but you have to report to the board, and the board has to control your comp. And I think of all the compliance jobs in our industry, being a chief compliance officer to a mutual fund board is the best of them because what happens is you develop this relationship of great confidentiality and um, mentoring and, and you know um, um, the, the ability to let people who don't have day-to-day access to operations understand how things work, you have it with the board. And when the doors close, because you have to have a closed-door session with those board members at least once a quarter, they are all over you with questions, David. How does this work? Or who? What's his responsibility? Or I don't know if I trust that guy. What do you think of him? And you know, you have this these wonderful confidential discussions, and then the doors open up, and everybody pretends like the discussions never happened. <laughs> um, those are great moments. Uh, in an advisor, you don't have guidance from the SEC that says the same thing that you how you're going to be supervised, but. Almost every compliance officer who goes into an advisor will create a compliance committee that sort of mirrors what the board is doing so that the compliance officer has access to not just the CEO but the head of ops, the head of trading, the head of advertising, the head of marketing, all the the top dogs in the firm. So that you can talk about here's the compliance strategic plan, here's the things I'm doing, here's the problems that I found, and guess what? The things that I promised you that I would do over the course of the year, I've done them. So what do I deserve? A big fat bonus. And you have (laughs) a deal with people. You have a deal with people that you know they they understand what you're bringing to the table and what your success criteria are, right? Mm -hmm. It's not just compliance that had no issues during the year, I must have been a good guy, or I had all these issues during the year, I must have been a bad guy, or maybe I had all these issues and I solved them, maybe I'm a good guy. No, you had a strategic plan like everybody else, and you implemented against it.
1: Got it. Now, um, okay, so we have five minutes left. In in the five minutes here, is there anything – that uh, I haven't asked you, I mean, we could go on for another hour, but we can't. Um, is there anything I haven't asked you that you wanted to talk about? Well,
0: I think, you know, I think we hit the, the, the big points. getting back to sort of the premise of this kind of session. So um, I, I, since the time that the um, compliance rules were implemented in 2004, uh, I've been a big advocate for them. Um, I was I was chair of a, our national trade group, NSCP, uh, during the financial crisis. And one of the things that we did was we went to all the members of the House Financial Services Committee and the Senate uh, Banking Committee to say, look, you guys are having some problems with the SEC right now, Madoff, other things, but whatever you do, this compliance program that they've implemented works it's ethics from the inside it's it's the kind of thing where you're calling on the firm to to rise to the occasion of the problems it should have and have internal controls if you wanted to do all that at the SEC or whatever government agency you'd say the OCC the Fed whoever it is it would cost hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars to get the supervision that you would have to get, that you get through what compliance is doing. And guess what? You'd never be able to do it as well because you would be looking at it from the outside. And when I'm chief compliance officer, I'm looking at it from the inside, and I know how things work. And at the end of the day, the government ends up having a lot of respect for the compliance officers. They they leave themselves the opportunity to pursue lawsuits against a compliance officer who who isn't doing his or her job, but by and large they've only used that uh, lever where the compliance officer is involved in in some form of wrongdoing. There are recent cases which start to go into negligence. Those are more problematic, but every time the SEC goes in that direction, they, they seem to want to go backward again, so that's a good thing. So anyway, I've, I've drunk the Kool-Aid in the financial services uh, arena, and my guidance to people in other industries is, look, this stuff isn't required, but I'd look at it very carefully if I were you, because instead of approaching this problem from the, the, the standpoint of the federal sentencing guidelines, which is an inherently negative way of looking at controls, why not look at it in this positive form of, culture of compliance, tone at the top, procedures, adequacy, effectiveness. Um, you know, it's not a bad yeah. paradox.
1: Well, it seems like there's such an uh, incredible opportunity to be proactive rather than reactive.
0: Well, I think that's right. And, and your call to action as a chief compliance officer is however you want to package it, you're saying, how can I be proactive and how can I make what I'm doing right. measurable? Because otherwise, I am just a tool of every problem that comes across my desk, and i don 't want to justify my existence by the problems that I encounter
1: no um, one final question in your you know in your book, you point out that compliance is a profession. I was wondering if you would just leave us on a note of where you think that role' is going next
0: well i th- I think that you know compliance is always at a crossroads because it, it is dependent on the courage of the people filling the role to be able to say, look, management, we need to do this this way or that way, and I'd, I'd like the opportunity to convince you that that's the right way for us. And there are two types of compliance officer. There's some people who are, you know, we affectionately look at them and say, he, he or she is a potted plant, because they're not willing to take any risks with their firm. And there's another type of compliance officer who says, I'm going to survive in this role. I'm not going to make everyone hate me, but I still need to have an impact. And I want to let them know that this seat at the table is the seat at the table speaking not just for compliance with the rules because it's written in some rule, but because it's the right thing to do and it reflects the ethics of who, who we have to be. If you, can, if you can walk that fine line and portray that message without getting people to think that you're sort of in this place where you think you're holier than they are, and you say this is the right thing to do, you've, you've just done a wonderful thing not only for the firm but for the people that your firm is selling services to.
1: Love it. Um, and so it, it's been so awesome having you on this call. It, it, this is such a great learning tool for people. A whole hour with you, hearing about your your books and your views on compliance and your insights into how to build great programs and manage people, and just all of it. I just I can't thank you enough. It's just an honor to have you here. It's so much fun. Well,
0: look- Elizabeth, thank you and thank Compliance for all the great work that you guys do and the help that you give to people. It's really been my pleasure to be with you today.
1: Thank you. Thank you all so much for listening. Uh, I appreciate you being with us here and supporting our new podcast. Uh, We're also going to run this on Best Ever You, so that means it will go out on iHeartRadio and iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, and so forth, and we'll also post a blog following the show probably in the next day or two um, and and maybe we'll have a few more questions and answers that maybe David can um, give us uh, so if you think of any questions you can tweet us at best at me at best ever you um, and we'll you know we can ask him a few more questions and post that maybe in a in a blog with the radio show and and just a reminder this show is always on free replay So I know a lot of you have listened live today by calling in and you're listening on the link as well, but the show lives through that link. So it's got all these social media shares and everything on the left-hand side of the page. So it can go on to Pinterest even. (laughs) David, you're on Pinterest, (laughs) just so you know. Um, (laughs) It can go on LinkedIn. It can go on Facebook. It can go on Twitter, wherever you want the show to go. There are so many ways to share it. Um, There's also even a way to email it and so forth. So we really appreciate you listening. And, uh, David, once again, thank you so much for being here. I appreciate it.
0: My pleasure, Elizabeth. Take care.
1: All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to Compliance 4. Have a great day. Thanks for listening and sharing the Compliance 4 radio show. Visit us at Compliance4.com to join your peers and our experts in our growing community.